Hi, friends. Welcome back to Have You Met Her, a podcast about amazing women. I'm Paige, and I'm digging into the lives of lesser-known women in history and sharing some of their stories with you. For the month of August, we're talking about women who were revolutionary teachers, women who changed how we view students and how to address the needs of all students. I'm pretty sure that if we all thought back to our time in school, we could name a teacher or two who inspired, included, or encouraged us in a way that changed us. In today's episode, I wanted to share with you part of the story of a woman who started life with very little and decided that she wanted to make sure that those that followed in her footsteps had more options to reach their goals. Instead of waiting for someone else to make changes in the world, she harnessed her own talents and worked tirelessly to be the change that she wanted to see. This woman's name will be very familiar to some of you. I almost thought that she was maybe too well known to include in this series, but the more that I read, the more I discovered that I really had no idea of how amazing she was. Education and equality were her life's work. Join me for episode 24, Have You Met Mary McLeod Bethune? It has been said that there was nothing happening in America that had to do with the struggle for equality of black people that Mary McLeod Bethune wasn't involved in. One of her most famous quotes is, For I am my mother's daughter, and the drums of Africa still beat in my heart. They will not let me rest while there is a single Negro boy or girl without a chance to prove their worth. And that is exactly how she lived her life. After researching Miss Mary, I don't believe that there is anything that she couldn't do. Mary Jane McLeod was born the 15th of 17 children in her family in the Cotton Belt of South Carolina in Maysville, 10 years after slavery ended. Her parents and older siblings celebrated that she was the first family member to be born free and recognized in her a different way of thinking, a pride in herself and her heritage that was carefully nurtured by her mother and grandmother. They recognized early on that Mary was destined for something bigger. The family, including the children, worked at the farm where they were previously owned and they were working now as sharecroppers. The family lived in poverty, but everyone worked hard to get by. When Mary was young, there wasn't a school for black children in town, so she went to work in the fields picking cotton with her family instead. By the time she was nine years old, she could pick up to 250 pounds of cotton per day. Mary would also go with her mother to deliver white people's wash that Mary's mother would wash and press and then return to the white people's homes. When Mary would go into the homes of the white people, she would see playrooms and nurseries for the white children. She was intrigued by their toys and books and the colors. And one day she picked up a book from the floor. 
She was flipping through it, and the child whose home it was told Mary that she didn't know how to read and to give her the book back. Mary decided then and there that the only difference between white and black people was the ability to read and write, and she wanted to learn. In 1882, a school opened in Maysville for black children, but the McLeods didn't have enough money to send any of their children. They saved for three years to be able to send Mary, their only child, to attend formal school. Mary started school at Trinity Mission School in 1885 when she was 10 years old. She would walk to school every day, which was five miles round trip, but she was still so excited to be there. This school was a one-room classroom that combined students of various ages. Mary took her studies very seriously and would come home and teach her family the lessons that she had learned during the day in the evenings. Mary's teacher, a woman named Miss Emma Wilson, recognized a special potential in Mary and told her about a school in Concord, North Carolina that was the first major boarding school for black girls called Scotia Seminary for Girls. A Quaker woman named Mary Chrisman from Colorado, who was a teacher and a dressmaker, wanted to support a black student's education, so she funded a scholarship that was awarded to Mary. This generous scholarship allowed Mary to continue her education, but also be exposed to a world that she otherwise wouldn't have known. Many years later, Mary, the former student, and Mary, the benefactor, were able to meet. Mary McLeod took the train by herself to North Carolina to start her adventure at Scotia. She was pushed academically, but also was exposed to an integrated faculty. She had both black and white teachers. The school was sponsored by the Presbyterian Church. Mary was also exposed to a middle-class lifestyle, which gave her confidence and polish. Mary learned manners and behaviors that matched her education, graduating when she was 19. Her academic achievements earned her another scholarship, so she was able to attend the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. People from all around the world were enrolled at Moody, and Chicago was a diverse city of immigrants. Seeing so many people was inspiring to Mary. Her goal and biggest dream was to complete her studies at Moody, and then she wanted to become a missionary. She was inspired at the seminary as a black woman and dreamed of going to Africa to work as a missionary there. Mary finished her studies after two years, graduating in 1894. She submitted herself and her trip for approval from the Presbyterian Mission Board to head to Africa as a missionary. Most churches would only send white missionaries around the world, so Mary was not approved. As any strong woman would when her whole world seemed to crumble, she adjusted her expectations and set a new goal. Since she wouldn't be able to help people in Africa as a missionary, she decided to help U.S. black students as a teacher. Mary returned to Maysville and accepted a position teaching at her former elementary school. 
It was a full circle moment for her since her own teacher had been so supportive in helping her grow. After a couple years, Mary moved to Augusta, Georgia, and taught at the Haynes Normal and Industrial Institute, which was also a school for Black students. She made this change partly because at Haynes she would be working under Lucy Craft Laney. Lucy Laney was the first woman to graduate um, out of Atlanta University, a woman of color with a college education. Lucy championed the approach to education that her university had used, which we would now call a literary liberal arts education. Mary embraced the philosophy, and after a few years of teaching at Haynes, she moved on to Sumter, South Carolina, and began teaching at Kindle Institute in 1897. Mary's time at Kindle was short, but eventful. She met a fellow teacher from a nearby school named Albertus Bethune and fell in love. The couple was married in 1898, and Mary gave birth to her only child, Albertus Jr., in 1899. Mary would later write that she wasn't intending for married life to change what she wanted to do, to change her vision of her role or her goals, but it seemed like it did almost immediately. Albertus had come from a prominent family in Charleston, which was very well-educated, and he had his sights set on business. He wanted a wife to take care of him, to do the housework and tend to the children. That was not what Mary McLeod Bethune had in mind. Mary, Albertus, and Albertus Jr. moved to Daytona, Florida, where many black families were moving in search of jobs. Mary saw so much opportunity in their growing community. She recognized that education was one of the few ways that black citizens, especially black women, could break the cycle of poverty, despite still being denied voting rights and economic opportunities. There were very few schools for black girls, so Mary decided that she was gonna start one. In order for Mary to start her school, she took stock of her resources. She was educated and a compelling teacher. She knew how to fundraise and how to make connections and grow support. And she also had $1.50. Mary found a rundown four-room cottage and convinced the owner to let her rent it for $11 a month. She also scoured trash piles and the city dump for furniture and supplies. She wasn't above cleaning up and fixing items as long as they could be useful to her students. She set up crates for benches and desks, and in the early days of her school, the students would make ink for pens from elderberry juice, and pencils would be fashioned out of burnt wood. When talking about setting up this school, Mary would later write, I considered cash money as the smallest part of my resources. I had faith in a loving God, faith in myself, and a desire to serve. Mary baked and sold sweet potato pies and boiled eggs to make money for the items that couldn't be substituted or salvaged. On October 3, 1904, Mary opened her elementary school, the Daytona Normal and Industrial Institute for Negro Girls, to her first five students. Each student 
paid a tuition of 50 cents a week to attend. Her school focused on practical, employable skills, including domestic science, sewing, agriculture, and teaching. She wanted her students to have self-sufficient futures. The Daytona Normal Institute needed money for the school to survive, so Mary went door-to-door asking for donations. She reached out to leaders in the community, black and white, and spoke so passionately and eloquently about her dream that people responded with support and awe. It was during this time that Mary honed a skill that she would find useful for the rest of her life. She knew how to approach and ask without pushing so hard or going too far and creating backlash. The Daytona Institute grew quickly. Within two years, 250 students were enrolled, which was awesome. But the school had completely outgrown their original building. Mary found a field where she wanted to construct a new school building. The $250 necessary to purchase the land was the easy part of the project. The field had previously been used as a dump by the community. Before any construction could begin, the land needed to be cleaned up. Mary rolled up her sleeves and her students followed her example and did the same. As a group, they cleared the thousands of pounds of trash. Their new building, where staff, students, and founder alike had contributed, was called Faith Hall. Part of the new building included dormitories for students. Enrollment wasn't the only thing growing at Daytona. Mary continually expanded on what her students were learning. Students at the school studied religion, trained for future jobs, raised chickens, learned about self-respect, and developed confidence. In 1907, Albertus left Mary and Albertus Jr. The couple would stay legally married until Albertus's death in 1918, but from 1907 on, Mary was a single mother who managed her growing school and her son on her own. Even though I'm sure that the end of her relationship was difficult, Mary would never allow anything to jeopardize her school. She sank all of her energy into working towards its success. One story that I read while researching Mary told about how Mary would only buy her clothing secondhand. And then she would bring the items into the school and have the students mend, tailor, and clean them. Imagine the students' pride in seeing a woman who was so admired wearing clothing that they had worked on. Clothing that was affordable for students from families of even modest means. Mary taught her students to be proud in a million different ways like this. It was underlying in every single lesson. In the documentary, The Art of the Possible, The Life and Legacy of Mary McLeod Bethune, there were former students from Daytona that shared what they remembered of their headmistress. The constant in all of their stories was that they were addressed as wonderful black students or my beautiful black children. Remember that in 1910s, prejudice against African Americans was still very strong. Daytona, Florida even had an active chapter of the KKK at the time. These constant, vocal, powerful affirmations of beauty, intelligence, and power from Mary to her students were extremely impactful. 
The Daytona school continued to adapt to the community's needs as they shifted and changed. White members of the school board thought that education through eighth grade would be good enough for black girls. Mary strongly disagreed and added high school classes and vocational programs to the school's list of offerings. In 1911, one of Mary's students came down with horrible stomach pains. Fearing an inflamed appendix, Mary took the student to the nearest hospital. They were told to use the back entrance, and then the girl in pain was placed on a gurney and generally ignored. Mary tried to comfort the poor girl and came to a decision. If hospitals would not treat black patients, Mary would open an infirmary at this school and she would treat the black patients. And that's exactly what she did. Mary found a cabin near the school and raised the $5,000 to purchase it. Her nursing program would teach and train students to provide medical care for the students, but also the black community itself, helping them get and stay healthy. Black and white physicians worked together, and the hospital grew from the initial two-bed facility to 20 beds. This hospital, known as McLeod Hospital, was praised for its efforts and successes against the 1918 influenza outbreak. When women won the right to vote in 1920, Mary started offering new classes that would help voters pass literacy tests. If you remember from our episodes on both Fannie Lou Hamer and Septima Clark, these literacy tests were intentional roadblocks put in place to stop people from color from being able to vote. Like Fannie and Septima, Mary recognized the importance of voting and the potential power in voting to positively impact a community. She solicited donations to cover poll taxes for new voters and planned mass voter registration drives. At this point, the Daytona school wasn't just a school anymore. It was so much more. It had grown into a place where people of all races in the community could come together, meet, and get services. By 1923, black education in Florida was changing. More and more public schools were opening and opening their doors to black students. Mary once again knew that it was time to shift her focus and decided that the most important need was helping young women after high school. In 1923, Mary merged her school with a struggling all-male college called the Cookman Institute for Men, which was located in Jacksonville. The new co-ed school was named Bethune-Cookman University. Mary served as the president of the school from 1931 until 1942. By the time that she stepped back to focus on other projects, Bethune-Cookman was a four-year university on a 32-acre campus with 14 buildings and 600 students. Bethune-Cookman University is now one of the 107 historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, in the United States. The students at the school were impressive. If you saw them out in the community, you would know them by their dress and by the way that they carried themselves. Speaking of the community, the city of Daytona was still struggling against segregation and racism. However, 
There was a street, 2nd Avenue, which belonged to the black community. There were 41 stores, everything from a Piggly Wiggly to clothing stores with fashion straight from New York, where the black community could find anything and everything that they needed or wanted. This community was shielded from the harshness of segregation in a bubble of protection, opportunity, and pride. This haven was due to Mary McLeod Bethune's influence on the city of Daytona Beach. She was looked at as a leader and not just in the black community. She interacted with powerful white people such as James Gamble of Procter & Gamble, John D. Rockefeller Jr., Ranson Eli Olds of Oldsmobile, Thomas H. White of White Sewing Machines, and Madame C.J. Walker. Mary loved her school and her community. She had always seen education as one way to fight against the injustices of racism in the United States. As powerful and impactful as she has been as a teacher, she knew that there were other roles that she stepped into during her free time. Mary was active in anti-lynching and desegregation campaigns. During World War I, her son served in the Army, and Mary pressured the Red Cross to integrate its services to soldiers. From 1917 through 1925, Mary McLeod Bethune served as the Florida Chapter President of the National Association of Colored Women. The NACW had been formed in 1896 to promote the needs of black women, and Mary was a perfect leader. She was threatened often by the local Ku Klux Klan, but was never wavering in her drive towards equality. Under Mary's leadership, the NACW bought a property at 1318 Vermont Avenue in Washington, D.C., which made the group the first black-controlled organization with headquarters in the nation's capital. Mary also served as president of the Southeastern Federation of Colored Women's Clubs from 1920 to 1925, which was an umbrella organization for many smaller niche groups with a focus on improving opportunities for black women. Mary McLeod Bethune was busy, busy, busy. She was satisfied that her vision would be continued without her constant physical presence and took a step back from Bethune-Cookman College as she set her sights on continuing to change the world on a national level. When Mary spoke, people listened. She had always been a gifted orator that spoke with power and poise and she was always willing to speak. She spoke as the leader of the National Council of Negro Women, a collection of representatives from 28 different organizations that worked to improve the lives of black women in their communities. Mary spoke as the political appointee and the special assistant to the Secretary of War during World War II. Mary spoke as the National Youth Administration Assistant and continued speaking when she was appointed to Director of the Division of Negro Affairs with the NYA. Mary's involvement gained her respect at the nation's capital. She became very close friends with Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt and served as an advisor to President Roosevelt during his time in office. Mary and Eleanor's friendship wasn't just for show either. 
at the Southern Conference on Human Welfare in 1938, which was held in Birmingham, Alabama, the First Lady requested to sit next to Mary, despite state segregation laws. Eleanor would often publicly and proudly refer to Mary as her closest friend. Mary's contributions weren't limited to government agencies and work. She picketed when stores would not hire black workers. She also worked with the National Sharecroppers Fund to fight for the rights of sharecroppers. Mary also protested in response to the unfair trials for the Scottsboro boys, who were sentenced to death after they were accused of assaulting two white women. In 1945, President Harry Truman sent Mary McLeod Bethune to a special world meeting, representatives from 50 countries who wanted peace and human rights for all. This meeting formed the United Nations. In 1949, Mary McLeod Bethune retired and moved back to Florida. Never one to sit quietly, she continued to write and speak, supporting the fight for civil rights. In 1953, she founded the Mary McLeod Bethune Foundation, an organization to carry on her ideas. The foundation promotes education, challenges people to take action, and encourages people of all races to work as one. When Mary was 78 years old, she wrote a piece as her final message to the world. She called it, My Last Will and Testament. In her piece, she writes about the legacy that she wants to leave to the black community. This piece was published by Ebony Magazine after Mary's death in 1955. My favorite passage from this piece is also inscribed on the pedestal of the monument of Mary McLeod Bethune, that stands in Lincoln Park in Washington, D.C. It says, I leave you to love. I leave you to hope. I leave you the challenge of developing confidence in one another. I leave you a thirst for education. I leave you a respect for the use of power. I leave you faith. I leave you racial dignity. I leave you a desire to live harmoniously with your fellow men. I leave you a responsibility to our young people. Mary was buried on the campus of Bethune-Cookman University. Mary McLeod Bethune left a legacy by the way that she lived her life, the way that she worked against incredible odds to help African Americans. She built a school from scratch and fought for education for all. She was remarkable, and the world is a better place for her being in it. While Mary McLeod Bethune was our focus for this episode, our theme this month is educators, so I also wanted to acknowledge some of the amazing teachers that had a meaningful impact on Mary. I've already referenced them, but I really wanted to take a second to celebrate them a little bit more. Mary's first teacher, Miss Emma Wilson encouraged Mary's love of learning, setting a tone of what a good teacher felt like. We also need to acknowledge the generous donation of another teacher, Mary Christman, which provided Mary's scholarship to Scotia, allowing her to have access to a safe, comfortable, challenging education. And of course, we also need to celebrate Lucy Craft Laney, the mentor teacher that inspired much of Mary's future teaching philosophy. You see, that is the magic of educators. 
They change the world by inspiring their students. Mary McLeod Bethune was quoted as saying, Next to God, we are indebted to women, first for life itself, and then for making it worth having. In 2004, Bethune-Cookman University celebrated its 100th anniversary. The university's vice president spoke about Mary and her legacy at the celebration. They said, During Mrs. Bethune's time, this was the only place in the city of Daytona Beach where whites and blacks could sit in the same room and enjoy what she called gems from the students, their recitations of songs and poems. This is a person who was able to bring black and white together. In 2018, the state of Florida decided to replace the statue of General Edmund Kirby Smith in the National Statutory Hall collection. They replaced him with a statue of Mary McLeod Bethune. Thank you for listening. Please take a minute to rate and review the podcast if you haven't already. I appreciate every single person who takes the opportunity to give me a five-star rating on either iTunes or or on Spotify. Every single one makes me feel so proud. Please continue sharing this podcast with your friends. Share it on social media or tell your best friend over a cup of coffee. If you have an idea for a theme that you'd like to explore with me, please email me at haveyoumetherpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our Instagram page at Have You Met Her Podcast to see some pictures of Mary McLeod Bethune and her life. You can also check out pictures of all the women that we've learned about on our journey so far. I always share what our amazing woman will be early on Instagram, so follow the show there for that insider scoop. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform that you're using so that you never miss an episode. I will see you next week.